Hello and welcome to the Choosing Happy podcast. This is episode 39 and another opportunity to find out more from someone who is not just a published author, but also a singer and performer. And as she says, she's had quite a portfolio career. It's Zoe Jasko and Zoe has published two books with a third on the way. She's also a mother of four and she has so much to share in this week's Choosing Happy podcast. Hello and welcome to the Choosing Happy podcast. I'm Heather Masters and today I'm excited to be interviewing author, singer and performer Zoe Jasko. And Zoe has published two books with a third on the way and is co-founder and creative director of Felici Opera. Welcome, Zoe. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. And I'm really interested in your story. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Okay, thank you. So um, I am a trained singer, and I have, I'm the former the founder and creative director of a company called Felici Opera, which is based in Hertfordshire. Um, and before the pandemic, we were very, very busy with uh, fully staged operas that we took on tour around Hertfordshire and a concert program as well. But when the pandemic hit, I couldn't work uh, at all for, for months and months. Um, first of all, the government said, obviously, the entertainment industry had to close down. And when the industry opened up again, um, there was no guidance as to when we were actually going to be able to get back to full capacity. And you can't run events on, on half capacity. It's just not profitable. So I had a very long and extended period of, of what I could call, I suppose, gardening leave. Um, and I used that opportunity to, to explore new creative processes, in particular writing. Um, and the result was um, two books which have already been published and a third on the way. Um, and it was it was really great. Uh, excellent. Can you just tell us? Have you always been a singer? How did how did that choice of career come about? Ah, oh, well, I suppose I'm like very many women. My career history is um, I don't want to quite say make it up as you go along, but uh, things happen to us as women in particular uh, that put us in different directions. So um, I engage. I started to sing when I was a child. And actually, it was on a, the school stage. And my dad, who didn't really come to performances very much, he was not interested in music particularly. Uh, he came and he listened to me one day. And he, was, he heard me do a solo and he said, ah, she's just got to have lessons. So that was really exciting. Uh, he then paid for my music lessons. And, and that's when I really discovered that this was something I could do and something I really enjoyed. So I'd always, uh, always sung. I'd been on stage. I'd been trained. Lots and lots of lessons. Um, but it was when my daughter, my youngest child, I've got four children, uh, uh, started school that I met a wonderful lady called Margaret Johnson. And together we decided that we would want, we wanted to launch this opera business because it was just something we'd always wanted to do. We'd found ourselves in, in different situations before. And it was just, I suppose, the, the stars aligning that together we were in the right place at the right time. I started my career working for Disney and I was trained with, by Disney, which has been so invaluable in terms of marketing and product 
and, uh, and entertainment, I suppose, that that was a good start. I then, I wasn't very well um, with the commuting and everything. So I changed track a bit and I found myself in the civil service, which I really, really, really enjoyed. And then I, um, I had a baby and I wasn't uh, as a surprise. I was very, very poorly after, after having him, like incredibly poorly. Uh, and that uh, made me change focus completely. So, so it's been, I suppose my career's been a bit patchy, but it's been really fun. And, and taking on a project like starting an opera company, um, where did that come from in terms of uh, why did you choose to create something new rather than, than join an existing one? Well, that's a very good question. I think both Margaret and I believed we could do it. We believed that we had, and we have got incredibly complementary skills. She is an amazing musician uh, and what she doesn't know about opera, it, it, nobody can keep up with her really. And I had a lot of the business skills and the marketing skills, uh, the relationship skills, I suppose. So we knew that we were, we felt very strongly that we were a great partnership. The other thing that we wanted to do was um, we wanted to get live music to communities at a, an affordable price. There's a lot of people who um, can't afford the more expensive opera tickets at some of the festivals and, and well-known places, but they still would like to go. Uh, and times of day as well, maybe in the afternoon or early evening. We also really wanted to engage with families and children. So again, it's got to be more local at lower cost. So we really focused on that. And the other principle of our Felici business was to always raise money for charity along the way. So wherever possible, we did fundraising or gave profit from the performances of the operas and the concerts to charities. And, and we've raised uh, £26,000 along the way, as well as um, paying all our opera costs and all our concert costs. So, yeah, I suppose the, in answer to your question, it was we believed we were a, a team that could deliver and we saw a, a a place for what we wanted to do within uh, the locality. That's wonderful. Um, does it have a home or do you travel a lot with the, the opera for performances? Well, we were primarily Hertfordshire based, um, bring live music to local communities. Uh, the pandemic really pulled us back on the opera front. So we had a big, a very, very extensive programme uh, to look forward to at the beginning of 2020, but that was obviously massively curtailed. And when we restarted everything again in 2021, we decided to to take a step back and, and to not deliver quite as much. So we only do about five or six events a year now, but they're absolutely credible events and we have great audiences. And one of the reasons for that was because actually I'd moved into writing and and that was going really well and I wanted to have time to explore myself as a writer and a career writer and a career performer around writing. So I'm very much now personally um, a singer, writer, performer. It, it's kind of all me. So what led you to the writing? So as I said, uh, when I couldn't work because of the pandemic, I, I had this enormous space and it was, it was just such a gift. I've got four children and they were homeschooling and their, their schools were absolutely fantastic. They had great online lessons. It was, it was good, but it didn't need all of my time to keep the family going. I had many, many more hours in the day. 
So the first thing is I started to, to go for walks. And if you remember back in um, the summer of 2020, it was beautiful, beautiful weather. And we, uh, government allowed us to go for short walks outside of the home. And I live in a beautiful area, very, very close to a wonderful track of countryside. And I went for these walks and I found really interesting places that I hadn't come across or just beautiful landscapes in Hertfordshire where I live. And it inspired me to, to come up with these short stories as I was walking. And I kind of dramatized them talking to myself as I walked through the fields. And <laughs> luckily nobody could see me because there's this mad woman coming along chatting to herself. But, um, and then I came home and I write, wrote the stories down. And that, that's why they're short. They're about two, two and a half thousand words. And I w had taken on some freelance work with a local author at the time kind of over Zoom and doing things electronically. Um, and he was very, very encouraging. And he said, you've got to publish this. You've got to try and get your work published. It's great. But I knew at that time that what I'd written uh, wasn't quite right. So I put that on one side and I started a different project, which was based on a piece of family history, which a novel came out of. Then, um, I, went, then I knew what I wanted to do with the stories. Uh, so I came back to them and I found myself in the very lucky position uh, at the in um, back at um, summer 21, I suppose, of having two drafts really, I felt, publishable. So what I did was I thought, OK, well, now which one, which one's going to go first? And mm. it ended up being the short story countryside book. Um, and then latterly, the, the novels being published and another collection of short stories will be coming out. Uh, next year, all with the same publisher. So how did you find your publisher? Well, this was, um, I guess, again, the, the kind of the stars aligning, if you like. Um, I knew that, first of all, I knew that uh, the Countryside Storybook uh, needed to have a great piece of illustration, a great map with it, because I felt that anyone from my area could identify where the stories were taking place. But Anybody from further afield wouldn't. So I felt a map would, would bring that together. So I worked with a local artist who I'd already met, and he produced this beautiful, beautiful bespoke map for me. So what I had was a really understandable product. And this is where I was tapping into my Disney training. I had a very good manuscript that had been you know, well looked at with other people had looked at it and commented on it. So that was in a good state. And I had this beautiful map, so it was really easy to understand what the book could be and what the product was going to be. And then I heard about a St. Albans-based independent publisher. And I thought, that's a great fit because St. Albans actually featured quite heavily in my book. And for me, this, this, the stories that came through walking around the areas close to, to St. Albans and then having a St. Albans publisher, it was just perfect. So mm. I contacted him and I think it was, you know, it was the right product for him as well. And again, I suppose that goes back to my Disney training. You've just got to, you know, go, if you've got a product, it's got to go to the right person, to the right audience. And my first hurdle was this, was the publisher. So I'm um, very grateful to the person who told me about the publisher. And then I got in touch with um, the publisher because the Endless Bookcase and, and just take it from there. And we have a fantastic working relationship. His team and I, absolutely brilliant. I'm very mm -hmm. grateful to them. 
And you mentioned that you had other people look at your book. Did you actually hire an editor or, or what was that process? So, uh, no, I didn't hire an editor. Um, I The way I work is I've got a very close group of people who I trust. Um, and it, as a writer, when you get your first draft, it's it's quite raw. And you know there's faults in it, but you, you also need people to look at it so that you're not going down a rabbit hole. Uh, so you've really, really got to have people that trust who are going to yeah. give you honest and supportive um, criticism on, on that. And I'm very lucky to have a, a few, you know, four or five people who are just fantastic at that role. And then um, once the, uh, the manuscript is more complete, then I would say there's kind of another layer of people who I have, friends and, and colleagues, who take a look at it at its more finished form. And, and that's really helpful as well. But I'd like to go back to my musical training. So where, as a musician I, um, I, and a singer, I have to know how to uh, physically and technically deliver a performance on stage. So what's coming up in the music, what I need to do with my breathing or my body position to create the notes which are coming. So part of my brain is like constantly, I suppose, left-hand brain thinking hmm. technique, technique, structure, structure, what's going on on stage, who's doing what, what's coming up, anticipating. It's a very different kind of brain pattern. But on the other hand, my right-hand part of my brain, if you like, is constantly delivering the performance, the, yeah. the storytelling to the audience, uh, my expression. And you would, when you look at me, you would never know that I'm thinking so hard about all these other things. And actually, I found I was doing that with my writing. I found that I was being incredibly technical and structured and uh, thinking all that left-hand side of my brain was as equally engaged as my creative storytelling. Um, and I think that that meant that I had, from the very get-go, first draft that was incredibly tight. Um, oh so I'm, I, I do think that that, and I'd really love to speak to other musicians, whether who've become writers, to, to see whether they've got the same kind of experiences, because I do think yeah. it's relatively unique. Mm. Excellent. And you, you mentioned you uh, were with Disney, and that's really helped you with, with marketing. Can you explain a little bit about how you marketed the book, or did the publisher handle most of that for you? Oh, that's a very good question again. So. Um, my publisher is brilliant, and but is very small, and many publishers are also very small. And marketing departments, even at the big biggest, are, ha are relatively small these days. I think um, most authors have to do an awful lot themselves. Um, and if you know, they as an author, you know your book the best. So, and also you have the keys to your own social media. So my experience is that it's a real partnership with my lovely uh, publishers. So I give them quite a lot of material and they're you know, like photographs and posts and they're able to use that. So, so I give them, I feed to them as much as they put out and it works really well. I think um, because I had to set up my opera company and I had to market that and reach the audience, I have got a very good feeling in, in how to go about it for mm. a book as well. Uh, it's just a book is just a, a lovely product, like an opera is a product, like a, like Pooh Bear is a product. 
So in terms of marketing and, and actually the book itself, was it published on Kindle? Was it published physically? Did you do any um, book tours or how did you promote it? So um, the both books, so the first book is uh, the countryside stories called What the Wind Saw. And that came out in April 20, last April, kind of 18 months ago. Um, and that came out also at the same time with the ebook version. My second book, the novel, came out this April, this end of March, no, March this year, uh, and that is a it's called Hope is Daffodil Bright, and that is a wartime novel based on the family research, which um, maybe we can pick up again later in this conversation. Yeah, um, and that uh, also came out in, with the ebook at exactly the same time. So the next process was uh, the recording. Now I know uh, a lot of books come out together, but for us, and it was better to release the audio book a bit later. And uh, I was asked to record the audio book, so I actually had to diarise that. And you know, it takes a long time. Obviously, you've got to prepare and rehearse each section, and then record each section. And then at the, the my publisher had to pull it together and create the audio book. But um, I don't think it's been a bad thing that the the both audio books have come out. A little bit after the mm. book and the actual book, um, it, it's, it's all there now and available for people to to buy and enjoy. Now to go back to your question of of tours, so you know I am very at home in events. It I've been on the stage since I was a teenager. Um, so for me to take the my books into a an event kind of audience capacity is really really natural to me, and I absolutely love it. So I've been incredibly fortunate that I've been able to make contacts with groups who want speakers. And um, I have a lovely program now going through into, into 24. I've still got slots more though, um, <laughs> where I can take the books that I've been working on or my experience as a writer or my experience as a writer-singer and bring that in front of audiences and, and then always follow that with um, lots of lovely chat and questions and, and the opportunity to discuss the books and reading. And I've just learned so much from my audiences as well. So, but I think, um, I think it's really important as a writer who has to do their own marketing to look, you know, look at yourself and go, these are my strengths. Let's work on that. Let's work on where yeah. I'm strong and comfortable. And then the ball will roll on that. Um, to be perfectly honest, I really don't like going around shop peddling my wares and having to go in and talk to shops. I really don't like that. I'd so much rather stand in front of a hundred people <laughs> and give them a show yeah. and go yeah. and talk to one shop assistant about my book. <laughs> Just following on from that in terms of social media, did you do your own social media? What did that look like? Um, did you do anything like anticipation posts? How did that work? Yes, I would say yes to all of that. So um, I was already present on Facebook um, and so was the, um, so was Felici Opera. So I already had quite a good following there and I was just able to tap into that for my life as an author. And as I've explained before, there's a, me as a singer and me as a performer and me as a writer all merges in together. So it was, it was quite natural. The new social media platform I discovered was Instagram, um, and I, I hadn't engaged that really because I'm a very, very busy person, and I think that social media can 
can really pull you in in a huge way unless you set boundaries. Yeah. So my boundary was don't do it. Uh, but then I realized that actually in terms of Instagram, I was really missing out because there's a huge book community on there. There's also a huge community of gardeners and walkers. So that was you know, very relevant. And mm. history lovers, massive community of vintage lovers and people who are interested in Second World War history. So my books just and me and just fitted right in there. And I have, I've made so many friends through using Instagram. And as a visual, very visual person, it, 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 I like it. I actually really enjoy it. But I, I think that with social media, it's really important to choose where you're happy. And I've just taken the decision, I'm not going to do every single kind of social media because I'd be doing nothing else. I'm going yeah. to keep working where I feel at my most vibrant and most happy. And that's what it is. Brilliant, brilliant. So you mentioned the history and the, the family history in your second book. Can you expand on that for us? Oh, that yes. So again, this was, again, it all goes back to COVID. I mean, honestly, my life kind of went in such a massive direction, different shift, gear shift with, with the pandemic, but it's, it's just been phenomenal, really, the impact and so happy. So I, and I was looking around for things to do uh, in the summer of 2020. I remembered that my grandmother had left me a box of letters. So, so my grandfather was vicar of Grantchester, which is a little village outside Cambridge during the Second World War. And my granny ran the women's voluntary service canteen in the village for the soldiers. And the reason there were a lot of soldiers in the village at the time is because it a three-mile arc for those big defence guns to defend Cambridge Airport, where RAF pilots are being trained. And the men, uh, the heavy, the HAA men, uh, they, it was a very underfunded section of the army. So the men, the men were living in under canvas with very, very limited resources. So the, the care and the love and the nurturing that the women in the village gave them it's just so clear in the letters what they wrote back, so thankful, and they were so happy. Mm. So that got me thinking very much about, in, you know, volunteering and also the war, but also who were these women that founded the Women Volunt Voluntary Service and who were they and you know, what was it? So my mm. research took me on, on a really lots of a very interesting journey. And I, found, I came across a historical character, a real person called Alice Bragg who ran the WVS in Cambridge. And she was so successful that at the end of the war, she was asked to become mayor, uh, which is a really important job at the point of uh, bringing the community back together at the end of such trauma uh, and trying to start to have normal day-to-day -day life again. Mm. And all these stories of women and what they did, and all ages, I mean, the youngest were girl guides, the oldest were in their 90s. I really wanted to put that into a, into a story into a novel. And so Hope is Daffodil Bright is the outcome of that. Um, and that is, people are really liking that story again because it's, it's untold. Um, we don't have many books out there which are, the heroines are um, in their 40s, actually. Um, yeah. That's been really, and it's also tapping, there's a lot of people who still remember the war and those people who've read the book are really loving it because they find it very authentic. And I think it's authentic because I based it in so much research, really nitty gritty research. 
I was going to ask you about the research. Um, how long did it take? How deep did you go? Uh, what were your threads of research? Well, again, in the pandemic, it was very different because we didn't have, I, I couldn't just go to libraries. I couldn't, um, I, I couldn't go to archives. I had to use what I had myself. So I had my mum who has, who can remember the canteen and her memory is very, very sharp. So I, in, you know, if you want a better word, interviewed her a lot. Then I had the letters. I found autobiographies online. I found a lot of documents online mm. and I was able and then I, there's um, some, a lot of, uh, there've been uh, collections of interviews that are online that you can get from people who worked in lots of different areas. And I read a lot of women's uh, observations from the time. So I had a lot of um, voices from the past. Mm. Like, And the difference of writing a novel to writing a history textbook is that it, it is going to all be about the character and the setting. So when I was, I found a lot of information, but I had to leave it out because if that information was not relevant to my characters or to the plot or to the setting, then it couldn't go in the book. I had yeah. to just put it on a different side. I had to be really, really diligent about that and not go off on one just because I liked it. Yeah. Um, and I think that made, has made the book really sleek and, and works well. And actually... I, I, I picked that up from my uh, academic training because I did a master's degree part-time at Birkbeck College uh, when I was working full-time in London. So if you can imagine you're working full-time in the office, get to six o'clock, race up to Warren Street to, to attend the lectures and the seminars and, and gave up my weekends to do work in the library. My time to do the academic work was so constrained that I had to be really diligent at only working on what was relevant and anything else nice or interesting mm. that could be a rabbit hole had to go on a different bit of paper. And I found myself really tapping into that, that learning um, yeah. when I was writing the book. Have you been tempted to write a historical nonfiction? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Because you have to be um, very careful with footnotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> and also, I um, I love character. I love getting into the character and mm. creating the character. So, so no, 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 no. <laughs> so you said you have a, a book coming out in 2024. Can you share that? journey and what that's about and where it came from yes so thank you that is a collection of five long short stories which sounds a bit strange to say long short stories I suppose you can say novella but I suppose they're they're about 10 to 15,000 words long so what they enable me to do is take it just a little bit further than the really short stories but not mm. full novel length and they it's about it's called the portrait on the wall and the portraits are portraits of pets so a friend I have who is a great artist paints imaginary portraits of pets and when I looked at the pets I the pictures I had an, an instant emotional response to the to the pictures and then instantly a setting or or something came to me about it because the thing is is that with a pic with a painting of a pet 
um, the pet doesn't recognize themselves in the painting. Mm. And the pet doesn't say, oh, can you hang me on the wall over the mantelpiece? Or I'd like to go next to your bed, please. They just don't know that. So it's all about you as the owner and the importance of the pet in your life. And, and there's lots of different emotional reasons why we love our pets and, and how important they are to us. So I, so for example, um, one of the stories, the picture is a dog and it's very somber and uh, blacks and browns and greys, very serious expression. And I, my gut, I looked at it and I went, that's a second world war dog. And then I thought, oh my gosh, how on earth did you keep a dog in the second world war when there's food rationing? So it sent me on a whole different research project. Uh, and then the so and then I ended up with a story about a young woman who is desperately trying to look after her dog during the Second World War when wow. all these difficulties are going on. So that just gives you a snapshot of of that book. And then the other interesting thing is, as a writer, is with with pictures. Is where does that picture come into the story? Is it the start of the story? Is the the painting going to be a contract at the end? That the you know what is. Mm. In its plot. So as a writer, it was really interesting to work on both levels there. And I'm really pleased with the result. I think it's going to be a, a, a people are going to like this book too. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I think pets take a big, big place in our hearts. So three very different books, really. Yes. Yeah. I'm a plate spinner. I've decided when I've got four children, I do lots of things at the same time. Um, I think it's really quite normal for me to have different types of projects on the go. And have you a new project in the making? Well, I have some ideas which are kind of uh, rolling on my head, but um, I just need a bit more space to to bottom them out. Um, so at the moment, yeah, I probably I'm working on some ideas for maybe something for twenty five, but we'll see we'll see how that goes. Yeah. So um, I know this is a question that many would-be authors really want to know. Is your writing, does it sustain you financially? Are you making a living from it? Um, not yet. Um, but the book is selling well. Um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what the next set of sales figures might look like. <laughs> so that that will be good. Um, it no, but I I think that most right, unless you really really hit the book time, most writers um, do don't really get there. But I also have to say that it's really hard as a musician as well to mm. be completely self sufficient um, only on performance. And in the world of music and uh, dramatic arts, most people have have a portfolio career. So you would be perhaps a, a trumpet, uh, a tra professional trumpeter, and a trumpet teacher, for example. So you might be an actor and a drama coach. Um, and for me to be a writer and a singer and a public and a performer, a speaker, is all part of this portfolio career. And are there any other? talents that you're you're using oh what in general in life um yeah I, I was I was more thinking I because you have this marketing background and this experience at at Disney and the civil service 
are you bringing those into anything else or well yes i am actually so i'm a member of um what's called the gardener's company it's one of the old liveries of london um and um i got into it because i just just love gardening and love visiting gardens and as a i don't know if you know the, the history of the livery companies but they are basically charitable foundations so they exist to to promote the industry to support the industry, to reach out to students, and to um, and to, and they've got big charitable funds to be able to give grants as way a way to charity people that need it within that sector. So I have a kind of I do have a little foot in that, and I do use my marketing experience, particularly design experience, mm. to assist the gardener's company, um, and that that's kind of a bit of voluntary work that I do there, and I have. Um, I had to take a little bit of a step back because I was getting very busy, but I was doing some schools outreach work, again, to take my performance skills and my kind of communicating skills into the classroom to tell young people just how brilliant the horticultural sector is, what great jobs there are, and or even not just for, if you maybe you don't want to work there, but just the, the, the health, um, mental health and well-being we have from engaging with gardens and plants and nature. So. Yeah, I do that as well. Oh, wow. And would-be authors or people who are writing their books now, is there any advice that you would give them? Yes, I think um, give it a go. I nearly didn't pursue it. It was only because the person who I was working for and who... um, was very encouraging, almost harassed me in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Have you sent it? Are you going to do it? I'm not going to shut up until you've sent your writing off because it's good kind of thing. I think you need to believe in yourself. Give it a go. Mm. I think it's also really important when you do. Um, so first of all, have a group of people around you who, are, who you trust and listen to them to begin with. When you're at the stage of being able to send it off to agents or to publishers, make sure it is absolutely the best, the best product that, that they can, whoever's picking it up can understand it and really see it as mm. the next book that they're going to publish. And then once you've been lucky enough and persistent enough to get that far and you're involved in your own marketing, to, to look at your own strengths and to really go from there. Yes, learn new skills. That's always really important. But start in your place of comfort and then branch out from that. Um, and if poss- and if necessary, ask other people to help you. Um, so if anyone would like to take my leaflet round book shops. <laughs> yeah, and um, and take the rough with the smooth. I mean, um, I had a very difficult situation last year, so um, I wasn't able to perform. I wasn't able to sing because I had a second bout of COVID. I'd had COVID for the first time uh, in, for, in during second lockdown, and then it came back again this, this spring 2022, and I it kickstarted my childhood asthma, and I was in such a state I could hardly breathe, and I, I had to pull out of all my engagements, all my singing mm. engagements for the year, and that was quite distressing because it's you know, I love singing. It's part of who I am. It made it made me feel like I was letting people down to have to pull out of gigs, but I just had to really rest and and recuperate. But I I used that rest time, if you like, to to 
think more about how I was going to tackle being an author and, mm. and setting out those book talks. So I think luckily the rest is, has done me good and the medication is working and I'm back performing again. But, you know, that was a rough time. I, it did hurt me to, to not be able to do that. And I had to dig deep and trust that I would get better. But on the other hand, it's been very useful to have had that time to position myself as the author. And maybe I wouldn't have been able to do quite as much if I'd had a busy program of engagements. So, mm. And just on that, because as you said, you're a, a mother of four. You've got this whole performance career, singing career and the books. How do you manage your time? How do you, how do you make sure that you sit down and write? Zaha. <laughs> no answer. <laughs> um, it is really, it is difficult. Um, I, my, my children are absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, my husband runs his own business as well. So they've got two parents who are quite challenged for time. But um, we have, we always have family meals together. We do spend time together. And then I have lists galore divided up into different sections. And I have to actually diarise. I know you shouldn't as a writer. It, it, everybody says don't, just write when you can. But I have to actually say, right, mm. I've got two hours now and I'm going to use them on the writing. And I have to do the same for the gardening and the same for the shop. <laughs> I just have to really, but and I do use every spare second I've got. Yeah. Um, and my children, are, they're wonderful. They're really supportive. They've... Um, they answer questions for me. They've got ideas on marketing. Um, they've been really helpful with the tech, actually. Right. Been very helpful with that. Um, the audio, you know, audio work and things. Um, well, my second son has even lent me the headphones for today's podcast. <laughs> they're, they're really, really good, too. Um, but it's, uh, it's difficult being a working mum, actually. Your time is always, you're always juggling, always thinking about a lot of things at the same time. And the podcast is called Choosing Happy. Do you feel that the writing, the singing, the performance has, has led you to your happy place, for want of a better word? But are you, are you, have you found contentment and is it the life you feel, you, you know, your best life? I'm very happy, but I'm... I'm always a very positive person, so I think I tend to get the best from wherever I land. But there is something about where I am at the moment where I feel I feel blessed and I feel contented. I'm loving just meeting all the people that I get to through the like yourself through through promoting the book and making new friends. I love the performance opportunities. I find it incredibly creative how it can all blend together, the singing, the acting, the stage work, the talks, the, the writing, the character creation. So, yeah, I think I'm in a really good spot at the moment and I'm so excited about what's going to come. But I'd, I'd like to share with you that you know, it wasn't always the case because I, um, I did actually lose my voice at one point. Um, I had three little boys under four. And I suffered from postnatal depression after the fourth one, after the third one. Um, and I was, I, I couldn't sing. I'd completely, I lost, I just lost the voice. Yeah. And that was incredibly distressing because 
my voice is part of my, it really is part of my identity. So I found not only was I a wash in nappies, I actually physically, physically could not produce the sound anymore. Um, and then that led to a situation of absolute terror of being in front of people performing. So I was, I did, I did re-engage a singing teacher and kind of work to get the voice back. And then I, once I was confident that I technically could sing again in public, I'd lost all my confidence, just actually shattered, couldn't do it. And I had to really, really, really work at getting myself back to a place of being able to perform again. I can't tell you how hard that was. It was really a real demon to fight. Mm. Um, and then, but then I did, and then I got back to better than before, I would say, in terms of singing and performance and contacts and enjoyment. So, Excellent. And I, I suppose we've covered it in you know, your schedule, but for, for those who are committing to writing, would you say it's, it's hard work or do you look at this as pleasure? because it's something that you're passionate about? Yes. Um, I think also as a writer, you need to let yourself let go wrong as well. Um, right. So I think it's a bit like singing practice or music practice. You're going to do a lot of practice, and but that's all behind the end product. So if I've sat down and I've written and I might have had my two hours and I've really written quite a lot and then I don't think it's particularly good, that doesn't really matter because I've mm. been practicing. And yeah. some of those phrases and some of those characters might come back better next time round. So I think that um, don't beat yourself up as a writer if it's not going wrong. Just see it as like that music practice that it's part of the process, the rehearsal of getting there. That's, that's what I would say on that. And your writing process, do you write and then go back and edit or do you write a little bit and edit and then write a little bit more? I think that that can be quite dangerous to keep, to keep going back and starting at the beginning. <clears throat> um, it's like when you're practicing a piece of music, it's like only ever doing the first page and never getting <laughs> late. And then when you perform, it really shows that you've only done the first bit. And not <laughs> um, no, so I think that it's actually quite important to just keep writing and understand that the, it's, it's your first draft. It's the bare bones. It doesn't matter. Just keep on going. Keep driving where you're going. Make notes to yourself, perhaps, of where you want to go back in the text. I, what I often do, I'm typing it out. And I just go, I put like big link in because I know that I haven't linked one scene properly to the next and I've got to go work with it. But my brain isn't there yet. My brain skipped mm. to the next big scene. So I'm writing that. And then I might put on another bit of paper, go back and relook at this character in the light of what I've just put in this chapter. So I would mm. I'd keep driving through on it. Um, and then I go back and edit, edit, edit. Uh, that that seems to work well for me. And I personally also write in very scenically because of my drama and my theatre and because I'm so visual, I do tend to write the scenes, uh, the big scenes, and I, I know what I want happening in those scenes. And mm. then, then I can find that it does fit together. Brilliant. And 
another common question. Writer's block. Do you ever suffer from writer's block? And if you do, how do you overcome that? Yes. Um, yeah, I think staring at a blank page is the most disastrous thing, actually. Um, don't ever write your opening sentence. Don't even worry about that. Just think about the scene um, and maybe just bung a few words down on your page already so that you're like, like a, a name of a character, a name of a place. Just, just so that when you actually start writing, it's not a white blank space. Mm. Already got something on that page already. It just seems to really help. And then know that you're not writing the first line of the story. Know, know that you're probably writing something that's happening halfway through. It doesn't matter. Just mm. start it. Just what comes into your head. And then you find that that really just rolls. And then you mm. can go back and maybe fill in the back. But Sitting down and thinking, we're looking at a blank white screen or a blank white page that I've got to write something now in this half hour or two hours. or That's a disaster. Just <laughs> That's really valuable. That's really valuable advice. And I think also using any point. So if you suddenly get an idea when you're in, you know, in a, a car park or in Sainsbury's or just get out your phone and write it down or a bit of mm. paper. Just write it down, that, that bit of an idea. Um, some, some, you could then copy and paste those ideas into a collection, onto a, onto a sheet. And then when you come to um, actually think more about the writing, again, you've got things on paper already or on the screen already so that you haven't got that white screen and you keep going. So you're basically capturing your ideas and then moving on with them. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Thank you. Is there any final tips you would give an aspiring author? Um, enjoy it. Just enjoy it. It's part of the whole, you have to enjoy every moment of it and look for the positives all the way through because writing the book is an important part of the journey. So is getting it published and so is selling it. It's all equally important. So enjoy all of it. Brilliant. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much. It's been so valuable. For having me. It's been great talking to you today. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll have you back again next year on your next book. So thank, thank you. you so That'll be great. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it or think it would be valuable to others, please do share. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave me a review. It really helps the podcast. All of the links are in the show notes. And I look forward to seeing you next week on the Choosing Happy podcast. <laughs>